Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. A couple of months ago, I had health and science journalist Gary Taubes on to discuss his latest book, The Case Against Sugar. But the half hour went way too fast, and we left a lot of fascinating material undiscussed. So I'm excited to have Gary back on Health Watch today to continue and deepen our conversation. Gary Tobbs is a former staff writer for Discover Magazine and a correspondent for the journal Science. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and Esquire, as well as being included in the Best American Science Writing Anthology. Tobbs has received three Science in Society Journalism Awards from the National Association of Science Writers and a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigator Award in Health Policy Research. He's the co-founder of the Nutrition Science Initiative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to funding and facilitating nutrition research capable of resolving key controversies in the field. Gary Tobbs is also the author of the books Why We Get Fat and Good Calories, Bad Calories, and returns to Health Watch today to talk about his latest book, The Case Against Sugar. The New York Times food writer Mark Bittman says, No one in this country has worked harder on or better understood the role of sugar in our diet than Gary Tobbs. As a journalist, an investigator, a scientist, and an advocate, he is without peer. Author Gretchen Rubin calls The Case Against Sugar a riveting history of ideas, a clear analysis of evidence, and an utterly persuasive argument that sugar is the new tobacco. And Publishers Weekly says readers will hate to love this book since it will cause them to thoroughly rethink the place of sugar in their diets. Welcome back to Health Watch, Gary Tobbs. Uh, thank you for having me back. So I'm just going to really quickly summarize both for you and for our listeners what we talked about last time before I ask our first question. Um, as a quick summary, in the case against sugar, you assert that sugar is behind the epidemic of obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease in the U.S., that sugar has likely killed more people than tobacco, that diabetes would be as rare a disease without refined sugar as lung cancer is without cigarettes, and that it is probably a significant factor behind the rise in other diseases such as Alzheimer's. We also discussed how people with a lack of basic knowledge of biochemistry who don't know the difference, for instance, between how fructose and glucose are metabolized in the body are the ones who are making our food policy. And lastly, we talked about this idea that um, a calorie is a calorie regardless of whether it comes from fat, protein, or carbohydrates and how that idea is actually something that favors the sugar industry and overlooks all sorts of uh, ways in which they are metabolized incredibly differently and that perhaps a calorie isn't really a calorie. So to, to con continue our discussion, I wanted to ask you why you are asserting a single cause for so many different conditions when a lot of these chronic degenerative conditions are often considered to be multifactorial. Well, when I'm talking about a single cause, I'm talking about, you know, we're, it's asking the question, what is it in the environment that's triggering these diseases? So, um, and as we discussed in the first episode, we have these epidemics of obesity and diabetes worldwide whenever populations transition from whatever their traditional diet is to a, a Western diet and lifestyle. When they start eating like we do in the U.S. or did the 20th century, they start seeing epidemics of obesity and diabetes. So the medical community in general thinks of this as a simple problem because they'll say it's the Western diet or the Western lifestyle that causes these diseases. 
And then they'll, so uh, well, the other thing I have to add is because obesity and diabetes are associated with an increased risk of heart disease, of cancer, or even of Alzheimer's disease, on some level, whatever causes obesity and diabetes will also increase the risk of those other diseases. And then the medical community says, look, it's the Western diet and lifestyle, and maybe it's a lot of different things in the Western diet and lifestyle. So it could be lack of physical activity. It could be sleep deprivation. You know, the, the hypertension that associates with obesity and diabetes is caused by the salt in the diet, and the gout that associates with obesity and diabetes is caused by the uh, red meat and the alcohol in the diet. And, uh, you know, maybe sleep deprivation plays a role. Maybe sitting around too much plays a role. You know, you, so there's a whole slew of things that associate with Western diets and lifestyles, and you pick and choose what you want from the smorgasbord to explain these diseases. I, I take a simpler approach, which is, and I think the entire medical community would agree with this up to a point. So just is, if you imagine the situation, is, let's say instead of having these obesity and diabetes epidemics scattered around the world, we had a particular type of murder scattered around the city. So there was uh, a murder with the same uh, MO, the same uh, in 10 different places around the city, the police would approach the uh, the murderer is assuming that there was one murderer, that in effect there was one person committing all these different crimes. And then if it turned out that the one murderer scenario couldn't explain the ten different crimes, maybe there was a, a suspect that they knew committed three of the crimes, but he had an alibi for the other four. So now you move to the next, or the other seven, now you move to the next uh, simplest hypothesis, which are there are two murderers, and now maybe you find a suspect who could explain another four, and you're left with three, and so you keep complicating the hypothesis as you go on. That's the way we all tend to think. Um, in science and philosophy, it's known as a concept called Occam's Razor, and the idea is start with the simplest hypothesis, and then only complicate it if necessary, and as necessary, and you know, in this world, in this obesity diabetes epidemic world, the simplest possible hypothesis is the sugar hypothesis. So you add sugar to any diet and you end up with obesity and diabetes, and that then increases the risk of heart disease and gout and uh, cancer, et cetera. And then the question becomes is the sugar hypothesis sufficient to explain all these epidemics, and is there a mechanism to explain it? Or do we have to evoke other things? Maybe physical activity is necessary. Maybe we have to evoke physical activity to explain this. Maybe we have to evoke sleep deprivation or trans fats. Or, but if you don't have to evoke them because the sugar hypothesis is enough, then let's not bother. And I'm just making the argument that the sugar hypothesis may be enough. Well, if if we think about you, you also take that further and talk about insulin resistance being a unifying factor among a lot of these conditions. Is there a way so someone could have a normal blood sugar and be insulin resistant? Um, is is there a way to assess um, our resistance to insulin so that we can figure out our our risk for all these conditions at at, at the moment? 
Well, there are complicated and ways that are more accurate and difficult to do and different for phys- difficult for physicians to do, and then there are relatively simple ways to do it that will give you a reasonable idea of whether or not you're insulin resistant. So, um, the, again, the medical community today, instead of discussing insulin resistance per se, they'll talk about something called metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is a cluster of metabolic abnormalities that associate together, and they include uh, excess fat accumulation around the waist. So if your waist size is getting bigger, that's a sign you have metabolic syndrome. And I should say metabolic syndrome is fundamentally a disorder of insulin resistance. So if your waist size is getting bigger, if your blood pressure is elevated, if your triglycerides, a kind of blood fat, are elevated, if your HDL cholesterol, known as the good cholesterol, is uh, low, and then if you're glucose intolerant, meaning uh, you don't respond well to uh, rises in blood sugar. Um, those are all signs that you have metabolic syndrome. I think the official, your physician's supposed to diagnose it if you have three of these five. Um, and if you have metabolic syndrome, it for all intents and purposes means you're insulin resistant. So if you're getting fatter around the waist, that's a good sign that you're insulin resistant. If your blood pressure is elevated, it's a good sign you're insulin resistant. If your ratio of triglycerides to HDL, the good cholesterol, is greater than 2, so let's say your HDL is 50, if your triglycerides are above 100, that begins to be a sign that you're insulin resistant. So there are all these little measures you could use. The primary you know, one is if you're getting fatter, that's a very good sign. And then the question is, what do you do about it, clearly? Well, you wrote this article that I really loved a couple of years ago in the New York Times about the terrible state of nutritional science in general, that much of the science in nutrition is of a pretty low level. And to your credit, while you are creating a case against sugar in this book, a case that you strongly believe in, you also acknowledge the lack of science to fully convict it at this juncture. Um, I'd say as a, as a person who does who hosts a health show, one of the frustrating things for me is I'll have a guest on one week, let's say Dr. Perlmutter, the neurologist, he'll come on and he'll talk about why gluten is so toxic. And if you look at his book, there's a giant section in the back of footnotes and citations from credible scientific sources. But I can have a person come on the next week who creates an entirely different narrative, arguing that gluten isn't toxic, that in fact the earliest varietals of grains were healthier and had higher amounts of gluten and were thought to be eaten earlier than than meat in humans. Um, and he'll also have a whole bunch of citations in the back of the book. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about these constructed narratives from like established science where we can sort of create contradictory narratives. And how would you answer someone who reads your book and says, why should I believe uh, the case against sugar versus, say, like Dean Ornish, who's putting together a, a, a narrative about uh, fat. Yeah, and I mean, you nailed the problem precisely. There's 
And I often give my lectures, I say anyone who would take health advice from a journalist should have their head examined, right? Um, <laughs> the, it's a problem, and there's no real easy solution to it. Um, let me give you some, I, I guess I'm, I like to make the short stories long. I spent the first 10 years of my journalism career reporting controversial science in the fields of physics and nuclear physics. And so my first two books were intense investigations of researchers that had gotten the wrong answer in the physics community and then the nuclear physics community. And physicists have a term for what, you know, the simple way is to say there's a lot of bad science out there. The physics term is pathological science, which is like disease science. And it was defined by a Nobel laureate 60-odd, 70 years ago as the science of things that aren't so. So just like there's bad plumbers in the world and there's bad doctors in the world and there's bad taxi drivers in the world, there's a lot of bad science, bad scientists in the world. And there are some sciences where it's easy to check whether somebody's right when they make a claim. So physics, despite how expensive it gets, you're using the science all about elementary particles. All the elementary particles are effectively identical. You know, a quark is a quark is a quark, and an electron is just like any other electron. And if somebody claims to discover something interesting, somebody else can replicate that experiment and Scientists talk about replication as being a key factor in science. And it's usually, you know, you know exactly what the people did. They're not using messy biological reagents or studying different, subtly different species of rats or mice. So you can replicate and find out if people are right or wrong pretty quickly. If the result is interesting, it'll happen quickly. And if it's not that interesting, it'll take longer. Once we get into public health and biology and medicine, Okay, all, I, people are different. People have minds of their own, so they behave differently from other people. Um, systems get messy. It gets harder and harder to replicate the science. So if somebody makes a claim, you can't just put together an experiment. If somebody makes a claim in the Cleveland Clinic, people at the Mayo Clinic can't duplicate it three months later to find out if it's correct. So you end up in a field where there's a lot of, you know, you get claims and counterclaims, and nobody's really checking to see who's right and who's wrong. And then simultaneously, the National Institutes of Health, which funds most research in this country, has a system by which they want to fund as many different scientists as they could to do what's interesting. So they all get a little bit of money. A little bit of money relative to what research, good research costs, and the end result of all of this is a sort of what I see as a kind of noise-generating machine. So in the field of obesity and nutrition, for instance, you've got about 150, maybe 200 papers being published every week. As opposed to, say, if we go back to the 1950s, you might have had 200 papers published every year. Now you've got 200 papers published every week. And the ones that are interesting are picked up by the media, so we read about them in the paper, and the ones that are interesting are the ones that make somewhat compelling claims. So this week coffee causes pancreatic cancer, that week it doesn't, this week gluten. And a lot of the science is just bad science, in part because the researchers don't have the time and the money and the 
They don't even have the motivation, really, to find out whether they're right. I actually talked about this in the epilogue of good calories, bad calories. Um, Their job, ideally, the reason you go into science is to learn something new about the universe. But learning something new about the universe is hard and boring and takes can take years to decades, probably decades, to do. Because there's so many different ways you can fool yourself. You have to keep doing experiment after experiment after experiment to rule out the different possible ways that your own biases or the universe or the equipment you're using might have conspired to fool you. So first principle of science, as a Nobel laureate Richard Feynman said, is that you must not fool yourself when you're the easiest person to fool. So to do something really meaningful in science might take 20 years of a concerted program, but scientists can't do that because they have to generate funding every few years. Uh, NIH grants tend to last for three years, so they have to keep publishing papers and generating grants. And instead of worrying about whether they're fooling themselves, they have to convince people that the work they're generating is important and meaningful, so they tend to spin it to make it look more compelling than it is. And the end result, again, is you know, literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of papers published every year that's barely science as functional scientists would describe it. And how would you um, describe the role of the, the nonprofit organization you started, the Nutrition Science Initiative? Is it trying to fill a gap in this or to do something differently than what you've described? Well, it, it, it is. It's not doing it very well at the moment. Um, what our goal was, there were two, two issues. One is you've got this world of sort of faux science, by pseudoscience, almost literally, that's just generating noise, like the static on a radio. And what you have to do is generate a signal. We've got obesity and diabetes epidemics out there. We've talked about this diabetes Prevalence in the U.S. has increased 700% in 50 years. That's a terrifying number, 700%. Somebody's got to do something about it, and that means we know the environment is driving it and diet is driving it on some level. We've got to establish precisely what it is. We need signals, not noise. So you could think of a, say, you think of the noise as a static on an old-fashioned radio, and what you need is to be able to get a radio station that says, this is right, this is important. And there's research that can do that, but it's expensive. It's not $500,000, million spread over five years like these NIH R01 grants are. It might cost $10 million or $20 million or $50 million or $500 million, but it's important and it has to be done. And then there are these other issues we've talked about, crucial controversies. The medical community at large is convinced that the only uh, characteristic of a food that influences whether we get fat or diabetic is the calorie content in that food or the density of the calories in that food. And I think that's naive, and other people think that's naive. And if it's the food itself, sort of what we eat rather than how much we eat, that's a vitally important thing to know. And those studies have to be tested that can differentiate, have to be funded that can actually differentiate between whether fat accumulation is caused by how much you eat or by what you eat. So that was the goal, to get the right studies done and to fund it at a level 
that would allow the researchers to generate a really important signal that would influence men. You know, a study where people could say, wow, this is vitally important, and then ideally the NIH would say, this is vitally important, let's make sure it's right and replicate it. Right. Um, well, Gary, for the remaining time that we have today, I just wanted to pivot a little bit to a specific uh, area of research that you, you mentioned in, in the case against sugar. C- can you talk a little bit about some of the research that suggests that the effect of sugar on our predisposition to be obese or diabetic is actually possibly passed down generation to generation. That if we have multiple generations of people eating a lot of sugar before us in our families, it creates a different situation for us than if it was only one generation before us. Yeah, well, it's interesting because when we talk about, and I'm guilty of this as well, you, you look back at the obesity epidemic in the U.S. and what we define as the epidemic begins sometime around late 1970s, 1980s. And then you look for something that changed in that time period in our diets to see whether that caused it. But when you look at populations, particularly studies done in the Native American uh, population called the Pima in Arizona, um, it's clear that as mothers... um, Get if obese and diabetic mothers get pregnant, or if the mothers uh, become diabetic during pregnancy, a condition called gestational diabetes, or if they gain a lot of weight during pregnancy, they will um, give birth to children who are now predisposed to become more predisposed to become obese and diabetic when they get older, um, when they become adults, and. If the females in the second generation do indeed become obese and diabetic before they become pregnant, then they're going to pass that predisposition on to their children as well. So you get this sort of vicious cycle where each generation uh, gives birth to children or an increased risk of becoming obese and diabetes and then passing it on to the next generation. This is very well documented in the Pima, and the numbers are terrifying. So, again, I forget them offhand, um, but the difference in the uh, children born to mothers without obesity or diabetes in the Pima population of something like, I don't know, are one-twentieth as likely to become obese and diabetic in there when they mature as children born to mothers who are obese and diabetic. Well, let me ask you a question sort of related to that. So prior to the 19th century, there was very little diabetes and less cardiovascular disease, and we ate almost no refined sugar. But most of the cultures were still eating a lot of carbohydrates, whether it was rice or barley or beans or bread. But you advocate a diet that not only cuts out refined sugar, but also cuts out a lot of whole foods that are carbohydrates that eventually become sugar. And I was wondering if it was because of this uh, generational thing, that if we were in the 19th century with no generations before us that were eating refined sugar, maybe it would be enough to cut out refined sugar. But because we have so many generations now, is it that we have to be more drastic? Or is there some other reason why the diet that you advocate is more than just returning to the diet pre-refined sugar. Well, that's, that's, that's part of it. But the gist of it is, if we're asking the question, as I am in the book, what do you add to any traditional diet 
to generate obesity and diabetes epidemics, and the answer is sugar. Once you have obesity and diabetes, so you look at the U.S., the estimate is 30 million uh, diabetics, uh, more than a third of the population is obese, more than a third is um, overweight, and, well, two-thirds overweight and obese. So you've got a, a, a metabolically unhealthy population. The question now would be, is removing sugar enough? And once you're already obese or diabetic. Once you're already, yeah, going down this road. Now, for some people it might, but I doubt it. I mean, I doubt it has any significant effect because I think the world is full of obese and diabetic individuals who eat very little sugar now. Okay, and I, I know some of them. You know, it's like at some level, clearly it's not enough to eat sugar. I, just to remove sugar or just to remove sugar and what are called high glycemic index carbohydrates, so that are highly refined grains, um, starches, easily digestible starches. So then you start asking, what would it take to fix, to make these people metabolically healthy? And there's a significant evidence, clinical trial evidence and anecdotal evidence. And now if you remove pretty much all the carbohydrates or all the easily digestible carbs, leaving only the carbohydrates and green leafy vegetables, and this is... You know, traditionally the Atkins diet, and it was frowned upon by the medical research community for some very bad reasons. Um, but there's significant evidence that people eat those ways can become healthy. But again, here's the kind of world where you need really good science to establish what works for different types of people, to establish why it works, to establish if it's necessary. Um, and because the medical community had embraced so many ideas that I believe were simply wrong, that research has never been done. Even when we do see research comparing different types of diets, they tend to be done on, on the wrong assumptions. and. Uh, misinterpreted as a result. So um, that's the gist of it. And indeed, if we are born predisposed to get heavier, to gain weight in a carb-rich environment is one way you can think about it, then those of us who are are going to have to live in a carb-poor environment if we don't want to have excess weight. So that's a diet in which you remove virtually all of the carbohydrates. Very, very quickly, because we're almost out of time, are you intrigued at all by any potential um, in the research that's coming out around intermittent fasting and insulin resistance? Yeah. Well, the, the work on intermittent fasting is fascinating, it's, and the anecdotal observations are fascinating. Um, you know, it makes sense that it would work to some extent. Is it, you know, I still don't understand how much it's necessary and whether or not it's sustainable, which is often a similar argument that people make about the way I eat, which is a, you know, very uh, carb-restricted diet. So the question, my question is, and again, I don't know what the answer is, because I know some people who say they find it easier to do intermittent fasting, to skip meals every other day, or, um, you know, go 18 hours between meals twice or three times a week than they do to eat the kind of carb-restricted diet that I find works for me. Um, it's interesting. You know, again, we once you establish that 
we live in a world where a significant portion of the research reported in the papers is Gary, unfortunately, I'm going to have to jump in because we're, we're out of time, but I'm really glad you came back for a, a part two so we could at least touch on some of these other issues. It was, it was really great to have you back on Health Watch today. Okay, well, thank you again for having me back. We were talking today to health and science journalist Gary Tobbs about his latest book, The Case Against Sugar. You can listen to part one of our conversation on the KBOO website at kboo.fm slash healthwatch. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host, and next up is Madness Radio.